uh, I, I, I did a I did a range of things when I was through the uh, uh, the, the heady days uh, I, I, I learned how to horse ride for example um, which is a it's a, I recommend it. It's a great way for people. If you're ever up to your ears in management, stress and stuff, um, a horse doesn't care about that. But you, you do have to listen to what they want rather than mm. to the way. Um, but no, I've, I've just launched a new choir up in Banbury, and uh, it's had a very good reception for its first mm. run out. It's called Twenty Four Ventiquattro, and launching that was every bit as hard as launching any of the products and whatever back in the old days. Um, and it really is cat herding, getting mm. 24 um, good singers together um, and pointing them at some really good music has been um, fun. Welcome to Push To Be More with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. This is a show that talks about the stuff that makes life work and to help us do just that. Today, I'm chatting with my guest, David Johnston from NED Legal about where he's had to push through, what he does to recharge his batteries and to be, as well as what more looks like. Now, the show notes and transcript from our conversation will be available on the website at pushtobemore.com. And whilst you're there, if you haven't done so already, make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter and each week we'll email you the links and the notes from the show automatically. They go direct to your inbox totally for free, which is amazing. Oh yes. Now, this episode is brought to you by Orion Media, which helps entrepreneurs and business leaders set up and run their own successful podcast. Why on earth would you want to host your own successful podcast? Well, it all comes down to marketing. I have found running my own podcast to be really rewarding. It opens doors to amazing people like nothing I have seen. I've built networks, made friends, had a platform to champion my customers, my team and my suppliers. And I think just about any entrepreneur or business leader should have a podcast because it's had such a huge impact on my own business. Of course, this all sounds great in theory, doesn't it? But in reality, there's a whole chunk of problems that go along with this, uh, Matt, like distribution, getting the tech right, getting the right strategy. Who do I talk to? Who do I get as a guest on the show? The whole nine yards. That's where Orient Media comes in and solves all of those problems. You see, I love talking to people, but I'm not a big fan of all the other stuff, like production. Who likes production? Apparently, Orion Media does. They take it off your plate uh, and I get to do what I'm good at and they brilliantly take care of the rest. So if you're wondering if podcasting is a good marketing strategy for your business, and I think it probably is, do connect with them at orionmedia.com. That's A-U-R-I-O-N media.com. So that's the show sponsor the fabulous Orion Media. Now let's talk about our fabulous guest. Get ready to meet a real life superhero in the business world. <laughs> Excuse me, clear my throat. Uh, the champion who led a B2B publishing team to unbeaten heights, earning him the nickname Thierry after Wenger's Invincibles. Oh yes, and following his HMRC publishing stint, he negotiated mergers, settled disputes at the cabinet office level and built an impressive portfolio in M&A. Now he's shaking things up by redefining the non-exec role for everyone from private equity teams to SME 
companies, pioneering innovations and governance, regulation, compliance, and legal services. The whole nine yards, basically. Fasten your seatbelts. Oh yes, it's gonna be a thrilling ride with Thierry at the driver's wheel. Thierry, great, I should probably not call you Thierry. David, great to have you on the show. Great that you're here, man. How are you doing? Thanks, Matt. It's a long time since I've been called Thierry, but uh, it brings back some good memories. <laughs> you know what, I was, as I was reading that, I'm kind of like, I think I'm showing my age slightly because, um, you know, I, apart from Vavavoom, you know, you kind of like, Thierry was an absolute legend, wasn't he, uh, when playing for Arsenal? And I remember many, many times watching him play, thinking, I wish I could play football like that. Um, so, yes. Are you an Arsenal fan? Uh, I'm wrong shaped ball, really, to be honest. I'm uh, uh, for oh, my rugby guy. Northampton Saints team, ah. which is. Uh, it, it's the real supporters club where you have to put up with more pain than glory. But uh. <laughs> That's what it feels like to be a Liverpool supporter this year, <laughs> um, which has been yeah. my burden I've had to bear. <laughs> oh, it's great to have you on the show. So, um, David, let's kick off, shall we? Now, as you know, this show is sponsored by Ori Media, and Ori Media specialises in helping people like yourself set up and run podcasts for their business. So I'm curious, if you did have a podcast, and you could have any guests from your past or your present, the only caveat being that they have had to have had a big influence on your life, who would be a guest on your show and why? Give it some thought, and it's tricky to pick any of the... Uh guys above ground frankly um the biggest one i guess was j.s bach and johann sebastian is uh, a theme right the way through from when i was a nipper okay um, he's uh, he's a stunning character to watch uh, most people have this horrible picture of the uh, the dower german um sort of mathematician style musician he was much, much more than that. He was a very dynamic character who also got kicked around a lot by yeah, by the way life treats you. But uh, yeah, he's been on my shoulder pretty much all the way through and the champion of excellence. That's very much his thing. Uh, the other, I would guess, surprisingly, and uh, I, it was kind of an antidote to doing an MBA many, many, many years ago. <laughs> um, a guy called Rob Townsend is probably out of fashion now, but he wrote a book called okay. Up the Organization. Yeah. And uh, he still sticks with me. I've, I've, I'm, I'm probably a fan of people like Porter and Christensen on the economic side of things. But mm. uh, Townsend had that unique ability to actually just take the mickey out of stuff and uh, lighten things, uh, especially big company bureaucracy and yeah. Uh, yeah, the hard stuff he did with a smile. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I think it's a quintessentially British trait, isn't it? To, um, <laughs> yeah, to, to, to make fun of the, <laughs> of the yeah, system. You've got, you got to take the business seriously, but not yourself. That was probably yeah, my approach to it. I mean, that's interesting. Townsend, I know. Um, Bach, I obviously know. But um, I, I'm not going to lie. It's the first time any, anyone sort of mentioned some... Uh, someone like Bach, a musician or a composer. So why Bach? I mean, I... I, mean, I you know, you sort of talked about his life not being as we pictured it, but why, Buck? Why does he sit on your shoulders? What is it that kickstarted that? I'm curious. Where did that come from? Uh, he was countercultural in the sense that you know, he, when he was composing and when he was doing most of his best work, he was in what would now be called the flyover states in America, if you follow me. Really, he's in the middle of Germany, in the middle of uh, nowhere, really. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, he's in a backwater. He's producing some of the most intense and varied, uh, beautiful um, and challenging music of the time. Um, really nobody came close. Um, he had a tough life, uh, two wives, 20 children, most of whom died. Wow, didn't um, know that. It was, uh, but he was also a, a guy who just didn't take prisoners. He um, had a sword fight with the bassoonist who was taking the mickey out of his compositions. <laughs> didn't um, know that either. <laughs> he did, he, uh, he, he's not your typical classical musician by any stretch of the imagination. He was driven, mm. um, but he was also a very, very empathetic guy. And uh, he did something, I think, which uh, stuck with me all the way through of uh, listen, um, really try to get underneath things and drill in. Mm. And don't take things at face value. That's been with me, as I say, ever since I uh, uh, came out of school, really. And, so uh, when, when was that discovery of bark for you then? Because it's not... I, I'm not being funny. It's it's not something. I mean, I've I've had three kids. I I never sat down with them around the dinner table, uh, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, to talk to them about. But they would have heard his music, um, but kids were never sort of seemingly interested in classical music. And so, at what what age did you start to get interested in Bach? What was that that catalyst? It was about the same time as I got interested in Led Zeppelin. Funny enough, um, <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> 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 and if you know uh, if you know Kashmir, you'll understand why. Um, the uh, I'd gone through the usual um, piano lessons and whatever as a as a, um, a school pupil. Yeah. And by the time you get to grade five or six, you start actually playing some stuff that's really quite fun. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that was Bach. And uh, just as my dad was giving up on me, getting getting more interested in the guitar than the piano. Um, I was beginning to hit some of the uh, the really fun Bach stuff. So first of all, through keyboards, a little bit through. A, I was a fairly mediocre cellist until rugby broke one of my fingers, and um, oh well. Was, and then you became a really good cellist. <laughs> no, I was a lot better at rugby than I was at cellist. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying much, um, but yeah, I kind of ran the, the ran those two tracks. The uh, mm. Led Zeppelin was actually a, a great release for me as well, and I still, you know, my, I'm delighted. My two daughters um, came to Led Zeppelin; they're now in their early thirties, so um, that that stood the test of time as well. Yeah, fantastic! Well, fantastic. It is interesting, isn't it? How I mean, I remember when I was at school, I did flute lessons, and I don't know why I picked the flute. I just picked the flute. Uh, it was just something that I did in sixth. I had to learn a musical instrument, so I said, oh, "I just want to learn the flute." Actually, I do know why I learned the flute, and that's because my dad had a James Galway CD. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I was going to do the saxophone because obviously Kenny G was around when I was, you know, thinking about this. Um, and then I just randomly heard this James Galway CD and I thought what he did sounded beautiful. And so I, th I said flute. And then, of course, I had my first flute lesson and strangled everything with inside of a six mile <laughs> radius. And so <laughs> yeah. I, it was then I realized actually uh, making music sound really good <laughs> is, yeah. is, is not something you do straight away. Uh, you know, and uh, I certainly didn't do that, but um, but no, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. It tends to take the ten thousand hours rule in software and in music. If you're not doing your ten thousand hours, you're not going to get there. Yeah, that's very true. And my my kids are very good musicians now. I mean, I can sit down at a piano and I can play. I can't read music. I can just play the piano. Um, but my kids are great so josh guitar and cello zoe on the piano zach's a drummer in fact i have his drum kit i don't know if you can see his drum kit is behind yeah, me yeah. 
in the in the studio here. Um, not, it's not that I play drums, it's just that there's nowhere else in the house to put it. <laughs> but it looks really cool as a backdrop. Um, well, they, come, they come with headphones now as well, which is yeah. real... <laughs> <laughs> We had to get them an electric drum kit um, because yeah. the neighbours weren't happy. But yeah, it was one of those, wasn't it? So, um, no, I love that. I love that. So do you still play the piano? No, I'm mostly involved in choral singing now. And uh, I'm still... Came back to that fairly late, actually. I, I parked it for... a um, the career and the kids and all that sort of stuff but about 10 12 years ago got back into uh, into singing um, in uh, choral societies and then smaller and smaller groups mm. and, oh, fantastic uh, yeah, is that like a church choir that you're involved with uh, not so much I mean the church has really given up on most things but mm. uh, the musical tradition is still very strong independently of them um, so yeah classical acapella singing is kind of my thing fantastic fantastic uh, that sounds awesome I wish yeah. I could sing. Um, I can't, as my wife likes to remind me quite often, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. So um, it's, she, in fact, one of the requests I get more frequently from my wife than anything others is, please, will you stop singing? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is fair enough. So, I mean, love of music aside, um, you know, obviously you've had your career, um, Tell us about the nickname Thierry. So it's a few years since you've had it. Why, why Thierry? Because uh, no offence intended. You, it's not like you look like Thierry. So, um, and I'm assuming you don't play football like Thierry. So what was it that uh, that caused this nickname to sort of appear? Well, it's uh, yeah. I'm saddled with a, a great face for radio. Um, <laughs> you the, and uh, me both. That's why I do the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a it's a career path that I don't think anybody could ever write because I, I started off <laughs> training as a lawyer. I then ended up setting up a law centre in London uh, in the middle of the minor strike in Thatcher's days um, and some seriously heavy duty politics. Um, but I then ended up uh, kind of reversed into legal publishing and ended up in charge of uh, mergers and acquisitions for a, a Dutch conglomerate. I don't think anybody's ever gone from um, a law centre to M&A. <laughs> no, maybe, it's not the normal progress, I don't think. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but yeah, I'm not but the, uh, the, the major step up was working for a firm called Kroner, uh, which was a uh, law to business publisher, um, still run by the founder's nephew at the first time I started there. And we went through a rapid growth. Um, the sort of four million pound business that I took on um, went to 26 to 65 to 120 wow. uh, in the space of seven or eight years. And in doing so, we had uh, every challenge you can imagine. We were up against some very big blue chip competitors. We had a very strict um, Dutch um, overseer, uh, Dutch owner. And they were continually throwing targets at us of increase your sales, increase your profits, increase your client retentions, increase, you know, decrease your staff turnover, um, increase the cross-selling, uh, reduce your cost per sale. Um, every metric they kept throwing at us every time, and we creamed every one of them. Mm. Uh, they, uh, there came a point where they they knew we had we had everything under control and nailed and said the one thing you can't do is you haven't actually acquired any companies and integrated them um, so we went away and we uh, we nailed that one too but because i'd come up through 
um, I, I started off. Uh, I came out of Northern Ireland and, and Belfast as a as a nipper and got railroaded into a law degree, um, which left me with a, an ability to not be scared of pinstripes. Yeah. Um, so um, the Dutch are very sceptical of the city and the whole M and A culture in the, U- the UK. And they want they asked me basically to go and uh, and jump into that uh, that shark infested pond and uh, guide them through it. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where the Jerry came from. It was uh, the invincible team that was in Croner at the time literally beat every target, every you know, home and away every time, um, nailed it. And Fantastic. Uh, it was the best team I've ever seen in terms of being able to bring people with them. I mean, there are people who can't, particularly at this sort of five to seven million turnover. There's a pain barrier. There's another particular one around 12, 26 to 30 is downright bitchy. Um, mm. And at each of these stages, and you know, the, the tiers between managing people and managing managers of people, you find uh, people step back or step aside. But we were able to bring with us uh, in the main um, a very strong team. Mm. Um, I would say the, the the strongest facet of it was the development of what I call the NCOs, um, the team leaders. Um, they were by far the best in the business. And uh, the uh, ability of that particular business to build foundations that really mm. lasted um, was quite impressive. Well, I miss Jesus a lot there, David. <laughs> I, love, I love how it just rolled off your tongue. Oh, yeah, we took this business from 4 million up to 120 million in about seven to eight years. Um, and all the while, the owner has given us yet more and more targets, never satisfied, uh, you know. And uh, What was, I mean, you, you, you alluded to the, to the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, which is what that stands for outside of the UK. It's, uh, it's a military term, isn't it? But what, besides that, or maybe uh, was that the only thing, what were some of the secrets from going from 4 million to 120 million? I mean, that's a, that's a massive deal. That's a rapid growth set there. Um, yeah, it's what I would call knowing your competitors and then ignoring them. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we were able to, to steer the business between two um, big drivers. The legal publishers thought we were fly-by-nights. They thought we were um, consumer publishing. The consumer publishers thought we were legal publishers and not very good at it. And both of them kind of um, stood back and really ignored us. They didn't understand mm. what we had, what we did. Um, what we had was an ability to get in front of uh, people dealing with red tape in small businesses. So mm. um, if you, Mr. Croner, the original founder, set up a newsletter in 1942 um, for shipping and import-export. I mean, in the middle of the Second World War, that boiled down to whether you were on the convoy or not. Um, but he got all of the, the, the inside information that anybody um, dealing with that had to have. And uh, that was the genesis of it. And it went through the 70s um, employment law booms. It went through the health and safety regulatory changes. And uh, basically they put together, in many cases, tens of thousands of subscribers um, to health and safety guys, to employment guys, to uh, how to run a school guides, uh, as well as the import export stuff. And uh, they quietly built a massive platform. What we did was we took that platform and professionalized it. We helped the guys um, on the on the kitchen table on a Sunday um, make sure that they didn't spend more than half an hour to an hour on dross. Mm. Uh, 
because, as you know, the, the, the fun of the kitchen table on the Sunday is actually getting through the damn receipts. Mm -hmm. uh, was in those days. It's, it's got a bit better now. Um, so, yeah, that was fundamentally our, our mission was to remove the red tape, um, spell it out in um, plain English. Um, and it was a very well-received message. But we then basically took the price points up. We took the cross-selling up. We took the product development in particular from um, one or two new services a year to dozens. Mm. Uh, and we were able to push all three levers at the same time. Um, we, we were selling more. We were selling more often than we were putting price up. Um, the competitors really thought we were mad, which was great because they stayed away from us for three to five years. Uh, then they tried to copycat, copycat, by which stage it was too late. Mm. Uh, but um, the client base loved it. They they not only bought more, they renewed more and they paid more, which is um, very rare to see. Um, I've seen it three times now, but um, that first introduction when it was my P&L um, was a real eye-opener when you actually get ahead of the puck, as the, the saying yeah. goes. Um, it's, a, it's a real boost. No kidding, it's a real boost. And that's some rapid growth. I mean, that's <laughs> proper rapid growth. Uh, I, one of the things you mentioned was that your Dutch owners kept throwing more and more metrics at you and you kept nailing, and the team kept nailing those metrics. As someone who runs a business who gives his team metrics, I'm curious um, how you responded to this. Did you... Whenever you felt like you'd hit a target, it, it sounds to me, David, like um, the owner would then go, right, now you need to do this, now you need to do And there's always this constant, you've never really achieved, you've, you've just sort of got to base camp rather than to summit, if that makes sense. Yeah. How, did, how did that make you feel? Did you respond well to that constant introduction of new metrics? Was that annoying? I'm just kind of curious to know what your response to that was. I found it instructive actually. I mean, they, this was back in the days when you know, spreadsheets were still kind of new and uh, the Dutch run companies by numbers. Um, and if you like, you know, Wenger's not known as a particularly strong footballer himself, but he knew exactly how to play the guys. Mm. Uh, the Dutch could quite happily fly in with the on their seagull management techniques and they would they would bat one metric against another continually just to see how flexible you were how robust you were and um, i i very quickly learned that you had to understand how all of these various metrics that they how the numbers guys were thinking so what i did was i um i built a, a model of the subscription business and the levers that worked on it and refined it really over mm. two or three years um, so that I could get ahead of the questions they were asking. And um, it drove them nuts because they um, they kept coming up with you know, more and more convoluted questions. But equally, um, my technique of following Townsend's advice of getting those guys off my back was to uh, to minimise the amount of time I had to deal with their BS questions while I was actually driving the business. And um, it worked a treat. The, we, my model for running the subscription business was probably more accurate than the CFOs uh, at group levels by, by an order of magnitude. So mm. um, I was fairly confident every time I went into those. It felt like you were going into the headmaster's office with a magazine. <laughs> down backside, but um, it, 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 um, it, it, it always ended up as a bit of a laugh, which was yeah. good. Fun. Um, but yeah, the, the first, the, the, the jump to 65 was all, all organic. That was completely organic growth. Um, and as I say, that relied very heavily on the uh, 
um, the growth in the managerial tiers. Um, mm. Decentralized, we encouraged groups to get more ownership of what they were in charge, what they could, what they could handle, and how they mm. could change it. So we had we had teams involved in both the um, product development and the marketing and the editorial yeah. production side. So they had all three levers. Mm. Uh, rather than playing silos, that liberated an, an enormous amount of entrepreneurial um, ability. And, uh, it was yeah, that sound, I mean, it sounds it sounds like a wonderful time. Uh, you know, the way you're talking about it, and, and the sort of the tones in your voice, and you're 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 ahead of the people running the company. You feel like you know what's going on. Um, the guys involved in the company um, have a sense of autonomy, and this was this sounds like this happened before autonomy was a cool thing, uh, you know, and talked about in all the management textbooks. And also the other thing that I've picked up on you guys being super pioneering is subscription businesses, which calls all, are all the rage now, you know, from Netflix to most online businesses are offering you subscription. Um, you know, Amazon Prime, a subscription business in effect, rakes in gazillions every year. And it's, um, y you know, but you were doing this pre-internet, pre-Google and pioneering the way in in a few of these things it sounds like yeah yeah i mean there were there were two two things I mean, subscription businesses are really hard um because they're very easy to get complacent about they're very hard to build um they're, they're much more difficult to manage especially as a market leader you have an enormous amount of responsibility mm. uh, by the time things start to go backwards in a subscription business it's too late to fix um so you're you're really um, always conscious of keeping product development um, and pricing in particular on a very, very tight lease. You have to know exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I say you have to be cautious, but you have to know exactly what your what your play is. Um, and there were you know, two examples. The uh, uh, We were the first to introduce uh, telemarketing and telesales into B2B um, legal publishing. So that involved uh, nicking the library of all things. We didn't have a budget and we weren't um, forecast to do it at all. We weren't being given any space to do it. None of the other teams were particularly enamoured of it. We, we put six people in a, in, a, in a library, shut the door, and worked out our own scripts over a matter of weeks. Um, it completely transformed the industry within mm. 10 years. Um, but it was a complete pain for the first um, two. Mm. <laughs> we had to work out a number of protocols around it. So, yeah, there was there was some fun of that. That's a classic, again, a Townsend thing of... Um, you know, find find the the gap in the armor of the of the beast that you can stick your dagger in, and um, that that worked a treat. But it was it was very very hard to do. It trebled the new sales capacity of the business within two years. Yeah, and uh, that was that was kill. Um, there was the usual stuff as well. The the off pitch work. Um, uh, one of the Dutch guys' um, mistress was determined to get me kicked out and have my job because it was the biggest business, biggest slice of the business, and she spent two years making my life a bloody misery. Yeah. Um, but hey, um, that just comes. Yeah, that's the old saying: if if there's no flack, you're not over the target. Yeah. No, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> that's, it's a little bit bizarre, though, isn't it? When you think about, I mean, you know, I'm only hearing one side of the story, to be fair. But it's kind of like, well, this is working. It's grown at a rapid rate. So why is the why would I want to change that? Why do I think I could do that better? You know, it's a bizarre way to think, isn't it? In a lot of ways, and it's quite it's quite arrogance towards something like that. So you were early pioneers of telemarketing, telesales, um, in a subscription business, which is, I mean, now and 
I've got the advent of I, I can set up a direct debit, you know, <laughs> online. You can go online and put your credit card details in. I just take money off that automatically. And we do that with a lot of clients. But um, back then, you're doing it what by check? By it's it's that's a lot of admin straight off the bat. And I'm 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 I'm, I'm my hats off to you, sir, because I run e-commerce businesses. We have you know memberships and where we take monthly fees off people. And it's a pain in the arse as it is. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, the profits are lovely, but um, it's it's not straightforward. Uh, but doing it in, in a time when that was not automated, uh, I, I tip my hat to you, sir, and the team. Well done. That that, that sounds remarkable. Well, the two things that were the, the finance team at the time were excellent, and they were run by a girl called Chris Whitehead at the time. And he, as, as a, um, an FD from a publishing firm, said the only publishing, the only paper we publish worth a damn is the invoice. Um, and um, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> it, there was a whole art behind all of that, and mm. uh, he had the systems to run it. Um, as a, as, you know, going back to the system that we had for marketing, it was a very, very much a direct mail. Uh, and and uh, what they'd now call a data science-driven marketing approach. Um, but in those days, they would, they'd only just 10, 15 years before I arrived got the the marketing out of cards in um, you know, long boxes. Mm. And uh, in theory, they used to do quarterly um, catalogs that they would send out to generate new sales. Every time they felt the top line was dipping, they'd go and say, right, pull off another 5,000 names and off they go. Um, what they didn't realize that the finance guys pulling off those names were always using A to E. By the time they got to the the Fs and Gs, they'd got their 5,000, so they gave up. Um, so one of the boosts we got was that actually marketing to people with surnames after J turned out to be <laughs> times more effective than <laughs> Stupid little rules that make all the difference. Um, so never let your FD run your marketing selection. That, that's probably right. <laughs> That's your top tip right there. Just, let them do, don't, just get them to do the finances and let the marketing guys do the marketing. It's really interesting, all these hacks. I mean, it's still the case today, isn't it? I mean, there's always hacks and ways around things. Um, they like to come up with fancy names like guerrilla marketing now, where you where you come up with concepts and ideas that your competitors aren't doing, like telesales, like calling people from surnames J onwards, like um, you know having these sort of little tweaks and nuances that no one's sort of really playing with. Um, and those principles are, are still as true today. But I find, um, and David, maybe you've got some experience on this. I find for those to work the foundations have to be right. Too many people are looking for the the silver bullet, but the foundations aren't set, and so somehow it doesn't seem to work for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, after Cronro, I worked um, for a good few years with a firm called Practical Law Company doing, in the legal field, um, very much the same subscription disciplines that uh, I'd seen work so well in Krona. Um, they were selling law to lawyers and they were beating um, the really big legal brands, Butterworth mm. and Maxwell, head to head. Um, their marketing, you know, they, there's no problem getting access to the names in law firms of the people you need to contact. You can get, they all publicize their, their uh, emails and telephone numbers. Um, but the marketing to them is hard because there's a lot of gatekeepers, there's a lot of mm. decision making units, even partnership structures are notoriously hard to actually get a decision yeah. out of so many ways they can bounce you down. Um, the trick we found there, uh, as you say, preparing the ground, was that we we used what I call pull-through marketing, that um, giving the service to the client of the client, if you follow me, 
Um, so the law firms were working for companies who had a general counsel inside them who was specifying what the law firm work had to be. Uh, we gave the general counsel um, free examples and free templates of all the stuff that we were selling. And we got to the point re reasonably quickly where the general counsel was stipulating to the law firms, use them. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the delays, the uh, price worries, the let me just check with all the objection handling, um, not disappeared overnight, but it certainly got very manageable. And uh, again, manageable by a telemarketing operation rather than the historical approach that the, uh, the opposition was still using eminence grease with big suitcases. Yeah, that's really powerful. It's a, again, you're coming, what you're doing there very well is you're understanding who your own customer actually is and who the real decision makers are in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and using some strategies to get through to them. It's a bit like, do you market to kids or to their parents kind of a thing, isn't it, when, you, uh, <laughs> when you've got that kind of thing? So what are you doing now? Um, I mean, fast forward, you know, just a couple of years to the present day. What, what, what are you up to now? Um, largely what I did for the Practical Law Guys. I was a non-executive director, albeit an active one there for the best part of a decade. And the two founders were um, great entrepreneurial um, lawyers still, um, and they they appreciated the fact that a, an independent voice um, speaking truth to power, as they say, um, was valued by them. And lawyers are always slightly contrarian anyway, so they, they kind of get this quicker than most. But um, having somebody who's not there to guard a bank's position, who's not there to um, try and ramp up their 5% to 15 to 30 to 35, um, but somebody who's actually just market-focused, saying that's mm. what the are doing that's what the market is saying that's what the technology spend is um, that's that's what I brought to the table and uh, I've been trying to bottle it and resell it to uh, the SME market in particular um, because they're the ones who don't have the resources of the big companies to do it um, so yeah the, the net legal concept is really putting a an independent um, voice um, on available at a, at a reasonable price point hopefully for uh, for SMEs to uh, to, to know even more than the bankers and the, the VCs and the private yeah. equity teams. And certainly to keep them equipped that when they do get the free lunch and they do get the, uh, the approaches, they're going to know at least as much as the guys opposite them. Fantastic. So what is, if I rearrange my question order, what's, what does growth look like for you? Where's, <clears throat> where's Ned Legal going to? What's the, what's the dream? What, what's the next few years? Uh, the dream is to get... Uh, automated service we're still very much at the uh, the setup stage we've got uh, uh, sort of brochure website we're, we're playing with python and developing um, tricks and traps underneath all of that to see if yeah. we can um, particularly automating around the the due diligence and the uh, uh, the sort of annual disciplines of enterprise valuation um, that's not hard but it's it's getting the market in, in inside into there as well that uh, we're, we're hopefully going to be bringing forward um, and in the meantime, yeah, we, we take the old um, standard approach of we can give you the weekly intelligence of what's going on. Um, we're on call um, for any queries or any issues around what's happening with particular market moves. Um, and in particular, we help the, the smaller businesses not be afraid of the big guys because um, time and again, um, you need probably to have had some experience of the uh, the, the corner offices and the mahogany playpens, as I call them, um, to realise that they're they're not really that scary, they're not really that quick, and uh, mm. if you know how to play your play your position well, you can uh, 
confidently ignore them. So we're, we're working on getting that together and uh, to a degree, AI's um, helping and hindering. Mm. Um, there's a lot more we can do. You can, for example, get shareholders agreements knocked up in a matter of minutes now, whereas even five, ten, or even two years ago, um, you'd have been looking at you know, spending a vast amount of money with a, with yeah. a citizen. Um, all of that um, shrapnel is getting so much more accessible now. We're hopefully going to use all of that to uh, um, yeah, help the SMEs in particular get ahead of the game. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I need a shareholder agreement, uh, David. So maybe let's have a conversation offline after that. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I, that sounds great. That sounds great. I mean, it sounds busy um, and it sounds fun. And it, I mean, in some ways, technology now is obviously in a very different place to when you were running the subscription business um, uh, a few years ago. How has that technology shift changed how you how you do business or hasn't it? I'm curious. Um, when I started off doing M&A, for example, back in Krona, um, the competitors had literally a wing full of um, management and cost accountants doing credit control and um, tracking down all of the company information that they needed on various competitors and stuff. It was a paper, horrible mechanism. Um, I can track over 1,200 firms from here. Um, confidently and um, we've got our own protocols in flagging up which ones are doing what and why um, and that's two people um, mm. it's uh, it's an automated process um, that's gonna get hopefully much more fun much more much quicker it's already um, a fraction of the cost it used to be um, the, the difficult bits of that come in in getting we, we always insist on putting the intelligence at the front of the analysis so we don't have a a wing full of we don't have a, a room full of MBAs uh, crunching numbers we have stringers we have people like myself who've been directors in companies um, typically not FDs um, we we like operational guys who know an account um, and we'll take their steer on what to drill into and why that's a, an interesting number or an interesting mm. move um, and that actually refines how we tackle stuff much more accurately to a degree that's what ai can help with if we can get those uh, decision processes mapped even better um it'll take a couple of years but that'll be um you know a good a good stretch on the opposition um, most people are still using um really companies house direct or the uh, um, dun and bradstreet data um, which is pretty poor frankly um, yeah it's it's always out of date. You you don't really get any idea what a company or a competitor is doing um, because you're looking at a three year snapshot. Um, the PLCs who do give you lots of data snow you with lots of irrelevant stuff. Um, so you've really got to know your way to fight through all that. So um, it's a uh, you know the competitor intelligence side is great fun. It's probably the one that I enjoy most. Um, but it the big lesson for me has been getting away from the MBAs and putting the uh, the line director. Um, urgency on the front of it. Mm. Fantastic, fantastic. So at the helm of this ship then, uh, how do you keep your batteries recharged? Back to bark, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Uh, I, 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 did a, I did a range of things. When I was through the, uh, uh, the, the heady days, uh, I, I, I learned how to horse ride, for example, um, which is a 
it's a, I recommend it. It's a great way for people. If you're ever up to your ears in management, stress and stuff, um, a horse doesn't care about that. But you, you do have to listen to what they want rather than mm. to the way around. Um, but no, I've, I've just launched a new choir up in Banbury, and uh, it's had a very good reception for its first mm. run out. It's called 24, 24, and launching that was every bit as hard as launching any of the products and whatever back in the old days. Um, and it really is cat herding, getting mm. 24 um, good singers together um, and pointing them at some really good music has been um, fun. We, we launched it actually on the day of the coronation as well so that evening oh, wow. um there was a big worry of um is anybody going to turn up is everybody going to be you know waving their flags at some mm. video but no we were sold out and it was um you know cheered to the rafters so uh, we're doing something right there i guess oh well done that's good that's fantastic and i I, I wish I could be a member, uh, but it's um, it's funny when I had that recharges your batteries and you, it's like trying to herd cats. Those two sort of sentences come together at the same, uh, same time. Um, but uh, no, that sounds great. It's um, I'm wondering, you know, in the in the heyday when you were growing up to sort of the 120 million and life's frantic and frenetic. There's obviously a very different emphasis in those days on well-being, mental health, etc. And having been through it on both sides, David, I'm kind of one of the questions I, I'm curious. I don't have an agenda in asking this question, by the way. Um, but do you think we're all in the modern day just all a bit delicate? No, um, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good stuff. Um, but I do think management theory in particular, and certainly management practice in blue chips has gone off the rails badly. Mm. Um, and there's still a very much, um, I call it C3I, the command control communication intelligence thing, um, where the command and control is actually getting out of control. Um, if you're growing a team, if you're leading a team, there's some very simple metrics you need to work on. The, the one that's always stuck with me is the one in eight. And it put eight people together, there's always one idiot. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's you. Um, they, oh, dear. <laughs> and, you know, the spans of control issue as you cascade it up or down um, needs very, very careful management and, mm. and measurement. So, um, Particularly after dot-com, I saw the blue chips lose the plot badly. Um, it's about the same time as senior management salaries got disconnected and went loopy. Mm. Uh, 08, um, really badly, um, particularly in the banking and finance sector, private equity have been off the rails pretty much ever since then. Um, lockdowns have just rolled that into the public sector every bit as badly. Um, so you've got a You've got a lot of examples of big companies who are really not, they're paying a lot of lip service to it, but they're really not managing those spans of control. Mm. And if you don't have the spans of control managed, then you have uh, what I, the, the, the easiest, the easiest symptom of it is spiteful obedience, where people do precisely right. what they're told um, because they know it'll hurt you. Mm. Um, that's what kills any organization um, sooner or later. Yeah. And far too much of that. That's where the that's where the strike calls are coming from. That's where mm. the disobedience comes from. That's where the the uh, you know the inability to really get teams switched on, mm. um, and it it bleeds out in well being. It bleeds out in um, working from home um, fights. 
Um, I was pioneering again in, in the, um, the Corona days and in every company I've been with, um, flexibility for working mothers in particular. Um, it was very selfish that if you, if you treat them like adults and you give them the time off, you get spades back. Um, and it, it never let me down. I got no end of flat from HR departments mm. for that, um, just because it makes it made the systems at the time harder to manage. But mm. um, yeah, well-being has always been an issue. But it, it, the problems with it are this, the, the top-tier culture is just toxic. Um, it's bleeding down, and it's the spans of control, particularly at the uh, at the coalface, at the sort of um, two to five million operating division level. Um, that's where it's 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 mm. breaking. I, I personally can't understand how the the Amazon business model, for example, um, gets praised to high heavens when it's paying basically slave labour. Um, I really yeah. really don't. And um, you know, you you have to have a respect for the the front line, which is not always there. Yeah, you do, and it's interesting, isn't it? You there's there's a dilemma, isn't there, at the moment with Amazon? On one hand one in two e-commerce transactions go through it. And on the other hand, there is there is a fundamental ethical issue uh, or an ethical question you have to answer, I think, when you buy on Amazon. Um, yeah. And uh, f for most people, convenience wins over the ethics of it um, most of the time. And it's, it's a really interesting problem going into it, it, you do wonder what the longevity of Amazon is going to be, given that that is their business model. Um, because you you see giants from the past who are similar in their approach, who aren't around anymore, um, and you 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 are slightly curious. You know, um, I mean, obviously from a business point of view, Amazon are doing very well, uh, and. But it, it does raise some interesting questions, and you're right. I, I find the whole thing, the whole debate, especially because I'm involved in e-commerce, I find the whole thing very fascinating to watch. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. really intrigues me. David, listen, um, I am aware of time, <laughs> and it has been such a joy talking to you. Um, very refreshing, uh, and love the conversation. If people want to reach out, if they want to find out more about NED Legal, if they want to connect with you, have some questions, maybe, what's the best way to do that? Uh, through the website, um, nedlegal.co.uk, and uh, yeah, send me an email or give me a shout, not a problem. Happy Fan to talk. Fantastic. We will, of course, link to that in the show notes as well, which you can get along for free uh, on the website at uh, pushtobemore.com. David, listen, thanks for coming on the show, man. Genuinely loved it. Loved meeting you. Loved hearing the stories. Slightly envious of the rapid growth that you sort of you did in a period of, uh, let's just say, not as not as advanced technology as we experienced today. Um, and hats off to you and love what you're doing at Ned Legal. So genuinely appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's it's been an absolute joy. Thanks. No, it's good to see you. There you have it. What a great conversation. Huge thanks to David again for joining me today. Also, a big shout out, of course, to the show sponsor, Orient Media. If you're wondering if podcasting is a good marketing strategy for your business, it's a bit like 
David's telemarketing thing when no one else is doing it. You know, it kind of gets you through the door a little bit. Uh, try having a look at podcasting, orionmedia.com. That's A-U-R-I-O-N-media.com. And of course, they will also be linked on the website as well. Now, be sure to follow Push To Be More wherever you get your podcasts from, because we have more great conversations lined up and I don't want you to miss any of them. And in case no one has told you yet today, you are awesome. Yes, you are. Created awesome. It's just a burden you have to bear. David has to bear it. I have to bear it and you've got to bear it as well. Now, Push To Be More is produced by Orion Media. You can find our entire archive of episodes on your favorite podcast app. The team that makes this show possible is Sadaf Bainon, Estella Robin, and Tanya Hutzelak. Our theme music was written by Josh Edmondson. And as I mentioned, if you would like to read the transcript or show notes, head over to the website pushtobemore.com, where, incidentally, you can also sign up for the newsletter. So that's it from me. That's it from David. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a fantastic week wherever you are in the world. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.